Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We're glad you were able to join us for this year's COVID edition of our symposium, which is all online. And we do hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. It's too bad you can't be here this year. It is beautiful right now. Um, for those of us who have just made it over from the Zoom link, thank you so much for your patience as, as we have sorted through the, uh, the information to, to get you in the right place. I know there are a few of us still in the Zoom link, so I'll get that taken care of. Um, if you'll give me just a moment, I'll get started with our sponsor video in about 35 seconds while I take care of a few things on the back end. But welcome everybody, we're gl really glad to have you here. All right, thank you again for your patience as we are getting settled. Um, my name is Cami Passy and I will be moderating this session. We're excited to have Dr. Dan Frank join us today. Um, this morning's session is going to be developing the core knowledge science sequence. It'll be presented by Dr. Dan Frank. While you are watching his pre-recorded presentation, you can submit questions to the Q&A link in the Cvent portal. So you should see a, a, a portion on your screen that says Q&A. Hit that button and start submitting those questions as we go. I will take those questions and field them to Dr. Frank after the at the conclusion of the uh, pre-recorded presentation. Um, we want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of, of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K-12 classical by visiting the exhibitors tab and the virtual attendee hub. This session in particular is sponsored by Core Knowledge. And so we are going to begin by watching a sponsor, a short sponsor video from Core Knowledge, and then we'll dive right into Dr. Frank's wonderfully entertaining um, video. You are in for a treat. A little bit of information about Dr. Frank I just found out this morning. He's in, in addition to um, the field of science and the field of publishing, he's actually interested in the, in the philosophy of humor. And I found out he even does stand-up comedy. So after the uh, after the sponsorship video, we will go ahead and I watch Dr. Frank's pre-recorded presentation. Again, please remember that you can submit questions through the Q&A portal. All right. Core Knowledge Science is a comprehensive program for elementary science grades K through five that helps students to build knowledge cumulatively, sequentially, and coherently. CKSI balances knowledge gained through observation, activities, and experimentation 
with direct communication of scientific factual knowledge via our student readers. CKSI instructional materials take the best of new science educational thought and applies it to the principles of the core knowledge approach and effective teaching practices to provide students and teachers with a robust, rigorous, and comprehensive science program. Greetings, everybody, and welcome. My name is Dan Frank. I am the Director of Science for Core Knowledge Foundation. And uh, I would first like to thank Dr. Jackson for inviting me to speak. Uh, I hope I can meet Dr. Jackson's expectations and yours as I talk about developing the core knowledge science sequence, but it's a lot more than that. I really want to talk about uh, all of the aspects that go into making uh, a, a program like this, a science suite of science uh, materials. I hope you find this a very interesting and happy talk, or as Anne Frank says, whosoever is happy makes others happy too. So let's, let's go. This is a brief overview. I've often found that the overview helps people understand where we're headed. I wanna talk about my background, something about the Core Knowledge Foundation, divert into some fun things such as misconceptions and paradigm shifts, uh, talk about constraints in publishing, national standards, local considerations. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the publishing process and ask you what you would do in a certain situation when confronted with certain choices. And then publishing and sending it out to the world and hope that people understand that your efforts, uh, you gave it your best, it's your best effort. I wanna talk a little about my background as a, a science education publisher not so much to toot my own horn, but to show what goes into uh, developing a philosophy that you can live with as you go to work every day. I have a doctor's degree from uh, Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, uh, and I was a professor of botany at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, my PhD was on one of the most beautiful leaves in existence. Uh, the California cobra lily, uh, Darlingtonia californica. I was very interested in how the tubular leaf developed and how it relates to other tubular leaves uh, that we can find in plants around the world. And after I did that, I was really interested in leaf venation, not so much uh, what it was, but how it came out, came to be. This is uh, Australia virginiana, the hop hornbeam, Look how regular those veins are. Why are they regular and how did that come about? And about 40 years ago, I just left academics and I pursued a long career. You can see some of the things I've been involved, Scholastic and Discovery Channel. Uh, a lot of different things that I've done that's given me the background to be able to be with you today. When I was a kid, I was really influenced by 
media and how it communicated scientific information. Uh, Kimo the Magnificent and Our Mr. Sun were films uh, that I saw in the fifth and sixth grade back in the 1950s, the late 1950s. They were fascinating and that they just, I thought these are great. And it was only later that I understood that doc, that uh, Frank Capra, three-time winner of Best Picture at the Academy Awards, director of uh, it's, uh, it's a Wonderful Life. And Mr. Smith goes, goes to Washington and uh, directed Clark Gable and It Happens One Night. He, I think, got sick of Hollywood. He went to Bell Labs and made just the most incredible films. It's like, oh my gosh, he had a lifelong love of science and it really came through. They just always never forgot about these. Then I saw Jurassic Park, the movie, I thought, wow, they, they, they ripped off Frank Capra. They learned from Frank Capra. Mr. DNA explained exactly how you could get dinosaur DNA out of the gut of a mosquito trapped in amber. The science was absolutely right. But the way it was conducted, the way it was put before people was amazing. And I thought they did a great job with Margot Robbie in a bathtub in the big short, explaining the intricacies of short selling. I was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and I looked around in the audience and everybody was looking at the screen. I go, well, that's the way to get people's attention. And look at this book, The Hydrologic Cycle and the Wisdom of God. I was walking through a college bookstore when I was at Humboldt State University, and I saw this title and I never forgot it. It turned out that John Ray, who wrote The Wisdom of God, talked about the hydrologic cycle. And Dr. Shuan took this and wrote a book about uh, uh, the history of the water cycle and the, the difference between a teleological approach and the modern approach, fascinating and a fascinating title. These scientists uh, and thinkers impressed me. They're all empiricists. Kanata, the founder of the atomic theory, he, nobody even knows when he lived. He lived so long ago in India during the Islamic golden age. Um, Avicenna, called Abu Ali Sina, uh, wrote over 400 books. Galileo's dad actually wrote thesis on the mathematics of strings, and he told his son Galileo the importance of ex the experimental procedure and taking data. John Ray, I love John Ray, he was a plant taxonomist before Linnaeus, and before he died, he wrote a message to people 200 years in the future. And he said, please try to understand how hard we worked to get it right. We know we haven't got it right, but we really tried. Please understand, it brought tears to my eyes that a man could do that and say those things. And also Inherit the Wind, when I was a boy and very impressionable, made a huge impression on me. And I think its message, the right to think, is still one of the most important things uh, that a person has to bring into a philosophy, especially if they're going to try to communicate science to children. And these were some of the things that influenced me as I uh, joined the Core Knowledge Foundation. And I'd like to talk a little about that now. And uh, when I came there, some of the 
uh, some of the philosophies that I needed to confront to do my job for these people. I think the one thing that Dr. Hirsch and I agreed on most profoundly was this statement that factual knowledge is the basis of rational thought. I told Dr. Hirsch that I first heard this on South Park on television, and he looked at me and he said, well, David Hume said it a long time ago. Uh, this is David Hume, uh, one of the first great empiricists who thought the human mind should be studied by scientific methods. He was so influenced by Sir Isaac Newton and there's a statue of them. This is my wife with David Hume in Edinburgh, Scotland. Dr. Hirsch, uh, the founder of Core Knowledge Foundation, uh, is a well-known educator, controversial in many ways, but I have met him and found him to be a wonderful man, very open-minded, very kind individual with a, a lot of good thoughts. One of the things uh, that's fundamental to Dr. Hirsch and to core knowledge itself is that background knowledge is absolutely relevant to being able to read in any subject and that any kind of higher order thinking requires a background knowledge. Um, Dr. Hirsch is now 91, maybe 92 years old is still going strong and writing books, but it's this fundamental belief that we should know facts, that we should know factual information, and that we should know some common information, which is necessary to the formation of a unified society. These are some of the books that, uh, that uh, Dr. Hirsch has written, his whole uh, famous series, What Your Kindergartner Needs to Know, What Your First Grader Needs to Know, uh, gave parents in America a very fundamental set of standards that they could turn to uh, when, when educating their children. They're very influential in schools. Uh, what sort of things should we learn? Cultural literacy is a term often associated uh, with Dr. Hirsch's studies and with core knowledge. Why knowledge matter? I love the subtitle rescuing our children from failed educational theories. Maybe it's a conspiracy of good intention, but there are a lot of bad educational theories that have not proven to work out from the past. And I think we, we all grow, we grow when we, we learn about things, we try things, we see they don't. So I'm not being critical, I'm just saying, this is part of an ongoing development. How do we educate? Uh, people and how to educate a citizen, Dr. Hirsch's latest book, The Power of Shared Knowledge to Unify a Nation. And we all agree that there's some kind of canon or some sort of basis of knowledge uh, that we can all agree with. We might be able to get, get on the same page. Um, rather than a old postmodern scattering approach, is there a canon? Is there a a series of things we should all know. It's at least worth considering. It's very important. And uh, so when I joined Core Knowledge, it was this factual information, uh, the presentation of, of very important scientific information that we could all agree with that makes comprehension possible. 
so that people don't read in a void as if reading were simply a skill that you did without any reason to do it. Uh, in, nine, in, in, in 2010, Cornell Foundation published the sequence. Um, you can see the copyright down. And this sequence set out the series of facts, which in fact reflected much of what Dr. Hirsch had talked about in um, the, the core knowledge philosophy and now the core knowledge set of standards called the sequence. Uh, and you can see here some part of the human body. Um, but also in that document, core knowledge made the statement that yes, this stuff is very important, but it will continue to be periodically updated and revise. Yes, there'll be more stability and change, but even this document has to change. These aren't written in stone. And as we learn more things and we explore more things and we argue about it and we reason about things, the core knowledge sequence would change. Uh, and change is difficult. People have learned to love it and any change has you know, controversy involved with it. But the next generation science standards came around and had a profound effect on how to uh, teach science, not only how, but some of the intangibles such as science of uh, and engineering practices uh, to go along with the factual disciplinary core ideas and uh, cross-cutting concepts, and also a phenomenological based approach, seeing something in nature and asking and forming questions about it. And it became very popular and it, 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 it took, it's taken over the nation in the last few uh, years as any teacher uh, can tell you and any science administrator can tell you. So I was faced, we were faced, the team at Core Knowledge was faced uh, with taking the knowledge science sequence in 2010 and translating it into a, a new sequence that indicated what we learned and where we wanted to take the core knowledge sequence uh, for the future. So we developed a, a, a new set of units uh, for kindergartens uh, through grade five. And we, I'll tell you later, we published uh, these uh, in very, very similar in, in structure and title to what you see here. Um, and we did that uh, after the revision of the core knowledge science sequence, which was a long and arduous process of we're looking at everything that was stated in, in 2010 uh, and creating this new sequence, uh, which you can uh, see online and see where we, uh, kept things and where we've changed. I want to talk about a little about that process. And we did publish books. We have now published uh, um, 30 different, uh, 30 different, uh, by the time we're done, over 30 different units. Here are some of them uh, that we've uh, published, a student guides, teacher guide, and online, online resources that go along with this program. By the way, uh, we're publishing, continuing to publish about the human body, even though it is not in the next generation science standards. This is a grade K one and two sequential, as you see here. Uh, grade three is being published almost as we speak. Grade four and five are coming out this spring. 
So there's a whole suite of human body, uh, which harks back to the 2010 sequence and to the idea of that human body should be taught uh, in the younger grades. Well, we also uh, uh, talked about electricity and a magnetism. I'm gonna talk a, put this slide here because I wanna talk a little about electricity so that I can focus and I don't have to go over all 30 <laughs> things that we talked about. So before you can even begin to publish things, as you're working on a new sequence, as you're thinking about the content, you need to be thinking about um, a couple of things. What things do people classically get wrong? You don't want to get wrong this time. And are we even teaching the right things? Should we be looking at modern science and seeing, is there something going on that we ought to be able to get into these books for the first time? What I want to do is, uh, when I'm talking about misconceptions, I'm going to give you a quiz. Now, I know you're uh, sitting there by the computer and nobody's going to answer, but you actually have to write down the answer so that you can at least know if you're right or wrong. So here's a quiz number one. This is a car battery. When I get into my Toyota RAV and I push the button, um, the electrons go, go from one side of the battery, they go, uh, well, they, don't, they, they end up going through the car to the other side of the battery. How long does that take? How long does it take for an electron to go from one side of the battery through the wires in the car to the other side of the battery? For hours, for minutes, the electrons don't move at all or instantaneously. So write down your answer because, well, let's see if you're right. Here's the answer, four minutes. It takes about four minutes for an electron, I'm not gonna worry about the electron or proton moving, it's another misconception. Uh, four minutes for an electron to move from the wires to the car. How many of you put down instantaneously? Obviously, if you push the, uh, button on the car, the car starts right up. So what's going on there, you know? Uh, so did you say the electrons flow, uh, flow instantaneously or it took four hours or four minutes or whatever? Um, well, look at these two things from the internet. Well, first of all, it takes, it takes between four minutes and four hours. It can often take four hours in some cars to go through there, but look at these things from the internet. This one on the thing has a pump that sort of tells kids, hey, there's a, the battery's like a pump. It pumps things through just like uh, water particles are pumped through a, a, a pipe. Electrons are pumped by the battery through the wires. So it's just absolutely not true at all. And yet you could find example after examples in, in uh, textbooks uh, and online trying to make this kind of analogy, which is an absolute misconception. It's not like that at all. I'll tell you what it is in a second. So when we write this, this is from the electricity book. If you look up there, there's a sentence that said, 
when the circuit is complete, current electricity exists from one end of the battery in the light bulb. It doesn't flow, it exists. It exists because an electromagnetic field is instantaneously established through the entire system. The electrodes flow, yes, but the, the, uh, it's an electromagnetic field that's the important thing. So if you say the electrons flow, if I were to publish that, if you as sitting in my shoes were to publish that, you would perpetuate a misconception. All right, here's another quiz. You have to answer this one too. Similar, similar. How long does it take for an electron to go from one terminal, oops, what I mean here is how long does it take to, for an electron to go from the power plant to your house? From the power plant to your house. It's a typo in there. Uh, this is why publishing is an iterative process. Does it take four hours, four minutes? The electrons don't move at all, don't flow at all, or instantaneously? What did you put? The answer, no, the electrons don't flow at all. The battery was a direct current, and this is an alternating current. The electrons in the wires just move back and forth. Like direct current, an electromagnetic field is established instantaneously along the wire, and the electrons don't flow at all. And most people don't understand that. They think the electrons flow. Anyway, this is a kind of misconception. This is the sort of thing that uh, a person, a teacher teaching in front of a class and a publisher publishing a book has to think about and has to think about seriously because they these kind of misconceptions exist all the time. This is, by the way, an explanation. There's an electromagnetic field. So the company provides the uh, electromagnetic field. That's what you get from an electric company you provide the electrons. Well, you have to build it so it actually toast the toast, but all this is a, pro a provider of electrons. And the guy who told us that was Sir James Clerk Maxwell. And I managed to find in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, a statue uh, in Newtown of, of James Clerk Maxwell. I went to his birthplace too. Uh, the Maxwell equations which were developed, uh, clarified by a man named Oliver Heaviside are there in a plaque in the ground. I just was the happiest guy in the world to be there. So when you write about this, when we, this is from our uh, uh, Cornell's electricity book, we say that a current is present in the wires. Well, it is present, but the electrons are not flowing and there is no flow of electrons little things like this. And believe me, there's a lot of them. When you get to genetics, everybody mixes that up. Here's a misconception, not in this slide, a beautiful color photo micrograph of a bacterial cell and bacteriophages, okay, on, on it. Uh, and here on the internet was a picture. Now, if you look at this picture, you're gonna think that a virus and a bacterium are exactly the same size, but that's just absolutely not true at all. So when you're making the book and you're buying the art and you're instructing the illustrator how to do the art, you've gotta be sure not to perpetuate a misconception. 
this actually goes to our, our next idea of a paradigm shift. Like, what is a virus anyway? At one time, we didn't know. We said, well, it's this thing out there. And the big question is, is it alive or is it not alive? But now we understand that bacteria are the way, uh, viruses are the way that bacteria spread their genes in the world. And it's a, a tremendous system for the horizontal transfer of genetic information. One of the most interesting things about planning any kind of scientific communication is facing paradigm shifts. Paradigm shifts are extremely important in science. And some of the most famous are the atomic theory of Dalton was able to prove that molecules consisted of atoms in a very small ratio to one another. And Koch and Pasteur with the germ theory changed the way we look at uh, modern medicine, really. So these were huge shift in thinking. And at some point, they got to move out of the realm of thinking and into the realm of textbooks. Who are these three people? I wonder if you know any of them, but all of them are involved in some kind of paradigm shifts. Lynn Margulis, the development the endosymbiont theory, which said that mitochondria and chloroplasts were once independently living organisms are now endosymbionts, shifted the way we think about the cell. Semmelweis told people to wash their hands. And if they had listened to Semmelweis, 100,000 women would be alive today. Well, they wouldn't be alive today, but they'd be alive uh, in their day because they would have not been infected with curable fever. By the way, he ended up in insane asylum. He was so reviled. Uh, Alfred Wegener, people thought he was crazy. He said, oh, look, those continents fit together. It was like Africa sort of fits together and you know, a lot of continental drift, plate tectonics. They laughed at him too, but now it's a matter of being in every textbook. Paradigm shifts are important. For example, we teach kids the difference between being living and non-living, but should we actually be getting them to think about the origin of life? This modern book by Jeremy England says, you know, life could come about just because molecules and, and atoms obey uh, the second law of thermodynamics which goes all the way back to Thales and uh, Greek ideas of where some of life originated. Should we be teaching kids this? It's not beyond their ability to wonder, what's the smallest length you can measure? Well, here's an activity we do in every classroom, but why not ask them what's the absolute smallest thing a person can measure? It, Max Planck asked the same question, came out with 10 to the minus 35 meter. But what that does is it opens up the whole idea of space and what it is. What is the nature of space? Why not have kids answer that question? Is it time to do that? It's a paradigm shift, I know, but why not get kids to, uh, to ask, what is the nature of space? This is a better representation for what the happening at Planck's length, but it also tells us the whole quantum nature 
the whole idea of a quantum field theory, the whole idea of how matter and particles and waves are all part of the same phenomenon. As long as you're at it, why not ask kids, is there such a thing as time? Yes, we have clocks, but all they do is measure before and after. And we have 11 systems in our brain because we need to know what comes before and after. But nobody's ever been able to show that there's a thing in time. You can't go back in time if there's no such thing in time. But nobody knows. Well, why not ask the kids? Maybe it's time to get them to begin to wonder about these sort of things. These are some of the great people in the past, Copernicus and Darwin and Galileo and uh, down there, Aristotle. Their ideas changed the way we think about everything. So paradigm shifts have always happened in history, but we need to have the courage to know when to move them into our educational processes. And paradigm shifts of who did what, uh, the great Islamic scientists of the past, the great Chinese scientists of the past. This page is from uh, an astronomy book that we made where we tried to talk about uh, constellations and in, in ancient astronomers in China. That's Hedy Lamarr, the great Hollywood uh, actor who came from Austria and along with George Enthal, a musician, came up with the idea for Bluetooth and gave the patent to the United States Patent Office. And Hedy Lamarr is a paradigm of what people can do when they really put their mind to it. I love this quote that she had. She was nonstop solution finding. That's what we should remember about Hedy Lamarr. So you develop a philosophy and you develop uh, the enthusiasm for teaching new things and for thinking you're so smart because you fixed all the misconceptions and all the fun things. And then you begin to face what core knowledge faces, what science administrators face in putting it all together and thinking about the things you can do and the things you can't do and the things you have to do and the things you don't want to do, but you have to do. The national science standards, this is a map from a little while ago, shows how many states have adopted or uh, are thinking of adopting the next generation science standards. And you know, uh, when the standards were first uh, thought about, you had a chance to send a representative from the state uh, to develop the standards and then this allowed you to do all you know all sorts of things with the standards that you couldn't do if you didn't send somebody to help out so it became a national force these next generation science standards and so when core knowledge had to think about those standards well they also had to think about something else Here's uh, clubs from two different schools. Uh, one, the Performing Arts and Technology High School in Queens, New York, and the other, the Belfort uh, Rodeo Club. So 
if you're going to teach and if you're going to come up with a program, remember that it's one thing to come up with a set of standards, uh, reading levels, uh, concept levels for one class, but not all classes are the same and not all schools are the same. These are high schoolers, but when they were elementary school, should they be taught exactly the same thing, exactly the same way? What is a curriculum that can be taught to everybody so that these two groups can learn some of the same basic background information and how do they go about learning it? My point is, it's one thing to make a science program for your school or even your district, but core knowledge is faced with making it for an entire nation. In fact, internationally. So that was something we always had to think about. And you know, it's very hard. I mean, how do you know what one group needs and another doesn't? Very, very difficult. Maybe you don't even think about it. You just do the best you can. Very, very important uh, to consider. Also, when you're doing uh, the national science standards, do a uh, search for electricity at their website, the word electricity in K through two, and you don't come up with much, okay? Because the word energy and the concept of energy is introduced, but electricity, according to the national science standards is something that should be subsumed into the more the discussions of energy. For example, uh, later on in grade three, it says, uh, here's the performance standard up in black, 3PS23. The performance standard said, ask questions to determine the cause and effect of electric or magnetic interactions between two objects not in contact with each other. And consider the science uh, and engineering practices, the disciplinary core ideas, and cross-cutting concept. This is just one of the hundreds of things that have to be considered as you go, uh, as core knowledge had to look at the national science standards and say, does this fit with us? And should it fit with our sequence that, that we're developing? So, we can, you know, we decided yes, magnets should be taught, and magnetism should be taught as uh, for the kids early on, so that they understand some of the fundamentals of magnetism, and that sort of went along with what was suggested by the next generation science standards. For example, develop a model. Here's another example: develop a model that matter is made of particles too small to be seen. Very interesting the way this is stated. It doesn't say develop a model to describe that matter is made of atoms because the word atom is not even suggested to be in the curriculum until about the sixth grade. That they should understand the concept that the particles are too small to be seen, but let's not put a word on it, okay? But I don't know, we didn't necessarily feel that was right. At core knowledge, we felt this is the kind of basic knowledge these and the vocabulary that maybe ought to be taught earlier than the next generation science standard. Yes, we taught phenomenologically. Yes, 
We had kids form and answer questions. We adopted many of the principles uh, of the next generation scientists, but some things we just said no. For example, Democritus, who came up with this idea, here's John Dalton again, I think these are important things. And Cornelage felt there were important things. So we took what we need from the national science standards, but we didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In fact, we didn't. And we made a, con a conscious effort to try to find a ground that we felt was important and to sort of keep with our intellectual tradition. Here's another one. Uh, this is very interesting. The next generation science standards say that you should talk about energies and fuels derived from natural resources and to compare solutions to reduce the impact of natural earth processes. These were not specifically kind of things that were addressed in the core knowledge 2010 sequence, but we actually felt that they, they should be. And we thought these things a little bit can be controversial, but we thought were so important. And if we're not trying to make a political statement here, we should talk, try to talk about how humans can reduce the impact of um, uh, human, negative impacts of humans on the earth. When the National Science Standards went to Wyoming, Wyoming is one of the states that had some problems with this. They ultimately adopted the standards, but they sent it out to the petroleum industry for their input. I think in Wyoming where oil is king, that's probably something that everybody should expect him to do. Uh, but here you have the oil companies weighing in. So environmentalism become, has become a political fight, but the core knowledge sequence has to change. So we, we, we went back and forth about this. What do we think should happen? And we ultimately thought that, you know, a, a couple of our units should be involved we're not trying to make a political statement, but to set out the scientific basis for understanding the uses of natural resources and protecting earth resources. Again, one of the many, many conflicts that went in to developing the new core knowledge sequence. So many happy things to think about. So many different things coming in all together all the time, uh, which is the joy really of publishing. And then it comes down to actually, how are you gonna do this thing? How are you gonna, it's one thing to think about things, another thing to do them. This gives you some idea of the complexity of the publishing process. The core knowledge science team over here on one side has lots of input from teacher consultants, subject matter experts, from the directions from the board of directors, which say you have to do this, you have to do that. Uh, leadership and finance, you only have so much money, you can't do this, you don't have enough money for it. Hey, here's some money, you can do this. Uh, all important parts of, of publishing. And any school administrator trying to buy themselves a microscope can understand a little bit of the problems all of us go through. 
Core Knowledge does not have hundreds of people working at its office. When developing programs, we sometimes go and hire a helper. In this case, a group called Six Red Marbles. Uh, the industry name is a development house. Uh, went out and provided names for writers and publishers, electronic people, all the people are doing the illustration, uh, people dealing with photography, editors, copier, proofreaders. They count, they got a lot of those. Cornology had some, they got a lot more. And the process begins once we had a sequence to develop what the student guides would look like, what the teacher guides would look like. And day after day, we went back and forth and developed the program. I like to say it was another day on the pecan farm. The day-to-day -day hard work of just getting it done based upon a philosophy, a, a direction, a sense of what you want to do. And then we, we, confronted. I'll show you some of the day-by-day -day things we looked at. You could see what you would do uh, if you were sitting in my shoes or uh, trying to make these decisions. Here, here's an example. Uh, this is an old, one of the draft covers, okay, of uh, a human body unit for kindergarten. So would you pick the cover on the left or the cover on the right. The way it turned out was the cover on the left was the first cover we had, and the cover on the right was the one that we revised and revised and ultimately came. Why did the cover on the left, what, bo what bothered us about it? Well, you know, one of the things is that those two people whispering to each other, it almost looked like gossiping. It, was that sending the wrong, Message? I, I don't know. Also, by having three pictures up there, the thing looked a little crowded visually to us. We thought, no, you, you're losing some of the power of the image. So we went back and forth, back and forth. In the end, this is what we came out with. We took the Braille thing and made it huge at the bottom. Then we asked ourselves, I mean, you could ask yourself this question. The two females are baking. Is that perpetuating sexism or is that just something that's a really wonderful aspect of daily life? We felt it was the latter and we thought it also had vision and smell, uh, which were two of the senses. So also all five senses are represented. Which cover would have you chose? We chose the one on the right. The next generation science standards, NGSS, very uh, activity oriented, very pro project oriented in some ways, also based on examining natural phenomena and making sense of it. We have hundreds and hundreds of activities in our program. Some take a day, some take two days. And then in some cases, there was a science project and the project, in this case, a couple of them, a sub sunrise at different times of the year and uh, uh, phases of the moon, these things happened over 
uh, the existence of the unit or in the case of some of them over an entire year, they're taking data and having the students do it. So yes, it's a strongly activity-based program. Modern science is about getting the kids to do things in the classroom. Uh, and that's something we just had to do a day by day, what works, what doesn't. Teachers would tell us, well, this doesn't work in the classroom. You can't do that. A teacher writer would say, I know you want this, Dan, but no, we can't do that. Here's a, this is a typical page during the editing process where I took out all the text that was initially written. It was good text. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but I felt teachers should know about the, the triple electric chart, which means if you rub a balloon with your hair, well, one becomes positively charged and the other becomes negatively charged. But like if you rub the rod with the balloon, one becomes, what, what's happening? How do you know where the electrons are? Well, there's a chart. Now it's beyond the range of the kids, but the teacher should know about it. So you take out some text, you put in other part of the day-by-day -day work on the pecan farm. This is even how we try to arrange and use the lessons. You can see the number of comments our editors have had 571 comments on a 200 page teacher guide, looking at every period, every comma, uh, every use of a word that it was done correctly. Um, all part of the day by day work of the re-editing and editing and the proofreading. And finally, when it's all over, the philosophy, the uh, pedagogy, the arguments about pedagogy, the this person wants you to do this, this person wants you to do that. You put it all together, you do all the work, and you send your, your baby out into the world. And this is my final slide. But hopefully we stayed with the truth of giving the base of background knowledge when we produced the 30 student readers, almost, almost 5,000 pages. And it's free for anybody to download on the internet. Anybody can download it for free. Yes, you can buy print materials if, if that happens to be what you need. But all of this, because we're a nonprofit organization funded largely by grants, free for anyone. And the work that went into it was at least heartfelt. At least there's a great attempt to study the data of what works in pedagogy and what doesn't, to have a philosophy to bring into the program of philosophy. And in the end, this was how the new core knowledge sequence was developed. And I hope you enjoyed this trip through what it takes to make a program like this. I wanna thank you very much for your time. I hope it was a good time for you and a time well spent. Thank you very much. Greetings everybody and welcome. All right, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Frank. That was an entertaining and really uh, informational uh, presentation. We're now going to open up the floor for um, some Q&A. And so Dr. Frank, I'd like to invite you to turn your video on so we can see you, hopefully. 
hopefully the video will come through. If it doesn't, I will stop sharing. And then once you are ready, once your video is on, then I will go ahead and field the first question to you. Let me see if you're showing up. As it's on. Oh, great. I can hear you. Thank you, Dr. Frank. Um, well, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just dive right in. We had a couple of questions that had to do with the materials themselves. So I will lump them together. Uh, the first one is, to what grade will your science materials go? Will there be middle school materials? And then secondly, sort of relatedly, how do you determine the level of depth to go into for a given grade level? So how far do you extend, do you anticipate these uh, materials going to what grade level? And then how do you determine the level of depth to go into for a given grade level? Uh, the first question, we have published uh, uh, student uh, readers, student books, student readers uh, for, for uh, grades K through five, uh, along with teacher guides that, uh, and online resources. So that, that uh, part of the program is done. And we are now conceiving a 6-8 program we're going through the basics. We hope to have six, eight materials out, which may focus a little more on scientific literacy uh, than the elementary programs, but we're still working on that. We are committed to publishing uh, six, eight materials, but all of our K-5 materials have been published. By the way, this uh, I hope you can see Carrie Walters from Six Red Marbles, uh, who has joined me She's, uh, if you ask me, she's the brains in the outfit. She's my daily buddy in putting all of this together. Uh, a remarkable editor, one of the greatest I've ever worked with. Anyway, <clears throat> the second question is grade leveling. Very, very difficult. Uh, you look at, you look at other programs, you interview teachers, uh, you talk to administrators, you, you talk to people from different levels of schools. Uh, you look at the, the core knowledge sequence, what it was in the past. You try to make your best guess uh, and get feedback from professors and from teachers as to whether you're teaching the right things and whether you're teaching them at the right level and whether the reading level uh, is consistent with a sort of national understanding uh, in, in some of the levels, we do lexiling of our books so that we're sure we're close to the grade level reading. But again, that's just that's for the whole country. So you remember my slide about the kids from Queens and the kids from from uh, Montana, and it's kind of this, you know you, you have to work with that. So getting the grade level right is really really difficult, uh, and it's one of the daily things you have to read it you get some responses from teachers. Uh, that's the hard part. So anyway, hopefully that, I don't know if that's a good answer, but we, th that's really one of the main concerns on the day-by-day -day basis. Are you hitting the grade level? That's really helpful. And I can imagine uh, it sounds like it's a pretty messy process um, and an ongoing process. It's, um, and it's not something that when you're done, you can push a button and goes, you're right. Because in some places, it will be too difficult. In other places, it may seem too easy. Carrie, do you want to talk about that for a second? Sure. I could chime in a little bit about the 
the, the question about how, how you determine how much depth to go into on a subject, a lot of it has to do with just mere practicality of the amount of teaching time that's available in a school year. Um, we, we sort of deal out topics like cards in a deck. We look at the number of days of instruction and the number of hours of instruction that are likely to occur in a given grade level. And then we address the standards that have to be covered and deal with the, the grade level that Dan focused on. And those factors really reveal uh, how much depth you can go into in a given grade level in the amount of time, given the amount of content that you have to cover. Um, so there's a, a mapping process that happens at the beginning where we divvy up the time that we have to teach all the stuff we have to teach. And that, that does drive, determine the depth. It's a pretty practical process that happens at the beginning. Well, thank you. We, we love practical processes. I, I'm speaking myself as, a, as an elementary school teacher. Um, I have another question that's specific to the 6-8 sequence. Um, will the 6-8 sequence have content directed to different grade levels specifically, or are they general texts that can fit into any of the grades? Will they be cross-discipline? Yeah. Excellent, excellent question. Uh, if, you, if you read the Next Generation Science Standards, Unlike K-5, in 6-8, it's grade banded, it's grade banded. In other words, what it says is here's the content for 6-8 and you, a teacher, make the decision, okay, of what grade you'll teach this in. Unlike K-5, where they said, this is what you teach in K, this is what you teach. What Cornellage has done, uh, and what we are doing, and in the process of doing, uh, is we want to present things grade level. In other words, this is what you teach in sixth grade, this is what you teach in seventh, this is what you teach in eighth. But we're developing the program because the kids are there. It's a weird, <laughs> not as weird as third grade, but it's very weird uh, grade leveling. We're making the point that you can mix and match. You'll be able to take from one grade and not from another, but we'll present it as six, seven, and eight. With the caveat, you can, you can use, you can trade these things around according to your own needs. There are some places you'll be able to trade more easily than others based on required prerequisite knowledge. Um, so, you know, because middle school throughout districts all over the country tends to be either life earth physical or six, seven, eight. And you have to kind of come up with a program that can be both. Um, we, we pay attention to that and point out where you have flexibility and where you sometimes don't. That'll be super helpful to have, uh, to have that sort of framing. Um, we are running short on time. So I have, um, Maybe one or two more questions. This one sounded really interesting. Um, how do you identify those common misconceptions? You noted, uh, you, you gave us some examples of common mis misconceptions. How do you gather those to know how to address them or to know if you need to? You know, that's a really, actually a really good question. <laughs> the first thing that, the first thing that I always do is I go now and I, I wasn't able to do this, but now I go to Google and I go to misconceptions. And there are 
a number of scholarly articles that have been published in the past and continue to be published. Uh, and I go and I read those articles and I try to figure out what professors <coughs> who, who study misconceptions in science. Uh, so that's the first place I go. And then also there's a lot of stuff comes from, uh, from my own knowledge. I've been 40 years in this right now. People mix up thermal energy and heat all the time. And genetics, if, if I had a dollar for everybody who couldn't tell the difference between a gene and an allele, uh, you know, I'd be a millionaire right now. So there's, you have a long background in science, you speak with teachers, but you also go to the, the scholarly research. But here's a, a story, a friend of mine that used to be a teacher, uh, earth grade, uh, earth science teacher, you come in, stand, walk in, they all love them, walk in from the classroom, he goes, wind begins when trees move back and forth. And then he just continued talking. And then his student, one of his students would say, wait a minute, Mr. Kelman, wind doesn't begin with trees when trees go back and forth. And he goes, what are you talking about? Of course it does. And then all of a sudden the whole class is screaming and yelling at him and he had him. You know, he had him interested in the origin of wind. And so misconceptions can be a positive if used correctly and you actually happen to know what the truth is. So yeah, what a, what a great is, teaching moment. Yeah, know, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> scholarly, there are scholarly papers on misconceptions that, that, that form the basis for the starting point for getting uh, that point. That's so great. Um, we'll just close out with a simple uh, logistical question. Somebody asked if there's a timeline for the 6-8 materials. We, we're still working for it. I don't want to make a uh, an outlook. We're committed to 6-8, but what that is, we're still working at. And I'd rather just hold back on that right now. The worst thing I could do is tell you we're going to do this and then make a shift over the next month or so. But Carrie, if I'm not mistaken, the current plans we have for a more literacy-based program would be available perhaps at the beginning of, uh, at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that there isn't any way we would have a full program out in 2021, but I think there will be materials ready to release at the beginning of, as early as the beginning of this next school year. Um, for some of the program, but it will probably be looking at summer of 2022 as a more safe projection. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I understand not wanting to overpromise and underdeliver. So uh, thank just, you very it, much. It's just not fair to the teachers. To, no. To, to, when, when we're ready, we will publish it online and everyone will know. And then we've made a commitment. Yes, and it is coming. So. It is coming. That's great. Well, I am so sad to say this, but our time is up and I've actually got people chomping at the bit to get into this office. So thank you, Dr. Frank. And thank you, Carrie, for being here with us, uh, for addressing those questions which came through. And uh, it was delightful to meet both of you. And I appreciate you, you spending time with us. And for everybody else, <laughs> great. For everybody else, um, just a few housekeeping things. I've shared my screen again. Let's see if it's working. There it is, now it's working. 
And um, please check out the virtual attendee hub for recommended resources related to Dr. Frank's topic. Uh, join one of the digital rooms of the forum at 1.30, so that's in about two hours, to discuss presentations and resources with other practitioners and leaders. And please complete a brief survey to let us know your thoughts on this session. Um, and even you can even add some things about the, the technical hiccups that we had. We'd be happy to, to hear from those so we can improve. Um, thank you, everybody. What a delight. So glad to have you, Dr. Frank. And have a wonderful day.